We've got a closer look at China's economy as well as some uncommon leading economic indicators. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me today, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Bill Mann. Thanks for being here. Hey, Chris. How you doing? I am doing okay. Been outside today? I have been outside. It's lovely. lovely. I think we need to focus on things like that or days like today. It is lovely outside here in the Northern Virginia part of the United States of America. Hopefully, wherever folks are listening, it is lovely where they are as well. Um, I want to... I want to talk to you about China, but before we do that, um, without naming names, there are a number of stocks seemingly every day now that are hitting fresh 52-week lows. Some of them falling precipitously, and we've seen this. We've seen this in young, unprofitable startups, and we have seen this with the biggest companies in America. Yeah, and. I wanted to talk to you first about the idea of buying stocks when they are falling, because I'm I am quite confident, particularly in the case of Upstart Holdings and Peloton, two stocks that are not only falling today, they are trading well below where they IPO'd. Yes, I am confident that there are investors out there looking at them and thinking, "Well, come on! I mean, it's below the IPO price." It's a steal at this price, and we don't have to get into those two individually. I'm just using them as examples. I'm curious how you go about the process of figuring out whether something that appears to be selling at a deep discount, whether or not it actually is a deep discount, it's and a, therefore it, a time to buy. It is a foundational question for investing, and it's really hard. It's 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 hard to tell. There is nothing magical about a company's IPO price. That is a that is a contrived that is a contrived event. There's also nothing really magical about a company's all time high. If you just pick out any company at random, like anyone, and look at the 52 week high and 52 week low, you will see that they tend to be somewhere between. 50 and 80% apart from each other. And not just this year, I mean every year, which means that at some point the stock was 50 to 80% cheaper than it was at a different point in the same year. This happens year in and year out. Now, we don't tend to feel it and we don't tend to sense it because it doesn't usually happen all at once. And usually companies are. You know, you know, as David Gardner is wont to say, the market tends to go up, but it goes down quicker than it goes up. Goes up longer, goes down quicker. We are at a point in time where it's gone down, it's gone down quicker, all at once, and it is across the board. And it's not just equities; it's not just U.S. equities. It's global. It is almost everything that's not energy. It's the bond market. So here we are, and we have to make. A good decision today, forgetting what the all-time high was, forgetting what the IPO price was, and Chris, I'm here to tell you that the market is fear and greed driven, and now 
Uh, obviously, fear is at its high. So, yes, there are absolutely bargains out there, and you just need to get back to first principles, figuring out what a company has the potential to earn over the long run. And in some ways, what's being offered right now is fantastic. Was it you who tweeted out over the weekend something about like some of the stocks that you're you're seeing now are trading? Yeah. They're trading below their net cash. Yes. Uh, so that was uh, that that was speaking about just in the pharmaceutical and biotech segments. But I actually ran another screen, and so what we're looking at here uh, is companies that their market cap is currently below the amount of cash that they have on hand. So, in other words, the market is literally expecting them to destroy money, which some companies are good at doing. But right now, there are 381 companies on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange that are trading below net cash, which means, Chris, not that I expect any of them to do this, much less all of them. If all of those companies just said, "Okay, we're going to stop operating and return your cash to you," you would profit. You're right; they're not going to do that. But it, but it, you know, it reminds me of the what Jason Moser and I talked about yesterday with Uber, um, where the CEO comes out and says, "Look, uh, we had our earnings report. I was talking to investors, and." Uh, to use his phrase, there's a seismic shift going on, and we are going to cut back on marketing. We are going to treat hiring as a privilege. And you would like to think that at least some of those 381 companies are going to take a page out of his playbook and say, Look at how we're being valued right now. What if we stopped lighting money on fire? Or not even <laughs> hear, that. hear me, hear me out. <laughs> what if we got just a little bit more judicious with the way that we spend money? Uh, this might be an opportunity here. I don't actually really consider that to be great management, though. Right? Like great management isn't about, hey, what's the market allowing us to do? Let's do that. Right? Great management is all about this is a way that we are going to try and maximize returns to stakeholders. And the fact that the fact that Uber came out and said, well, you know, we're not being allowed to do this anymore by the market, I didn't take that as being awesome. I mean, it's great that they recognized it as opposed to as opposed to, you know, running the ship into the rocks, but at some point I think you really want to focus on companies where the managers are good allocators of capital in whatever kind of market. And those companies are out there and they they really do give themselves away by, you know, you're seeing returns on capital and i know this is really really great podcast topic but that are that are strong year in and year out last question before we move on do you expect to see cuz again some of the companies you look at the stock performance and i get everything you're saying about like don't anchor to the to the high or the low necessarily but some of the companies out there have a lot of cash on the balance sheet yeah is it your expectation that a common refrain we're going to hear over the next six months is company X is increasing their share buyback plan because all of a sudden uh, the stock is trading 30% where it was at the beginning of the year? Or is that just going to be on a case by case basis? 
I actually hope that it's on a case-by-case basis. Because if we think about what's great about capitalism is that it, capitalism, at the end of the day, is, is the efficient use of capital. And we are in a remarkable time right now where over the last let's call it 10 years just to put to put a marker down is that poor uses of capital have not been punished they really haven't you have been able to survive as a money losing company for a long time at this point so what we're feeling right now is a washout so what i'm hopeful for is that we will see the truly strong companies doubling down on what they're doing and pressing their advantage that's where i think real long term gains are going to come from i do think i do think you're right i'm speaking hopeful rather than rather than you know what i think will happen uh but I think what you're seeing right now is the companies that are going to survive long term should be looking at this time right now and saying, our weaker rivals may not survive this, and that's a good thing for us. And what is a way that we can press our advantage and make that happen quicker than possible? I know, I mean, I, I know that sounds harsh, but that's the reality of what the markets are supposed to do. Oh, absolutely! You know, it's like the old saying: when your opponent is drowning, throw him an anchor. That's right. <laughs> um, increasingly, people are looking at China's economy, looking at the rolling lockdowns, um, and saying, "Look, the Federal Reserve can do whatever they want with interest rates. They're not really going to be able to have an impact on what's happening in China." So, first and foremost. Based on what you're reading and seeing, how concerned are you about China's economy right now? Uh, I think you should be concerned. I mean, there are millions and millions of people who are locked into their houses. I heard anecdotally, uh, but it was to me a a pretty good source that right now in Shanghai, people are not being allowed out of their houses even to collect food, even for food to be delivered, that you must remain inside. So, it is it is severe, and it harms the rest of the global economy, both on the supply side and on the demand side. So, we've seen companies like Starbucks has just pulled their guidance and you know an Estee Lauder which does a huge amount of business in China have just ratcheted their their guidance way down because of the impact of the Chinese economy. I don't actually consider that to be the most dire part of the business of the whole situation. Um, I mean ultimately let's be humans here the most dire part is that there is a human a humanitarian crisis going on in a country of 1.4 billion people and so you know ultimately my hopes are that the that it is resolved for them as quickly as possible but china is still the factory of the world and for people not to have uh, the freedom to to work to go to factories that is, you know, that impacts all of us. So, based on that, based on companies like Starbucks cutting their guidance because they don't feel like they can predict what's going to happen in China, yep. should every investor uh, do the same with their own portfolio and just say, look, if, if American businesses with huge bases of operation in China don't have the vision to see what's coming in the next six months, uh, maybe I should just cut my uh, expectations to zero. I don't think you should. 
I mean, unless unless you view what is happening as, in China as something that is so unpredictable that we could see ourselves years from now with this same problem. I mean, you're talking about something that has gone on for six weeks, which is, again, from a human standpoint, that's an eternity. And from a business standpoint, for businesses that rely on just-in-time inventory and they rely on the, they rely on a fully functioning supply chain, that is meaningful. But it's not. You're not talking about something where China is permanently going to be removed from the ecosystem. And you know, the other thing that's interesting to me on the supply side is because China locked down first and earliest in 2020, there were companies like Procter & Gamble that suddenly found 80% of their products unavailable because of what was happening in China. So, we are two years down the road already of a decoupling. So, it is serious. Absolutely, it is serious. I would not worry about the impact of what is going to happen over the next quarter or over the next year as being deeply meaningful in terms of uh, our investing theses for, for companies that are reliant in one end or the other on China. What are you going to be watching to give you a sense of, uh, hopefully, uh, the rolling lockdowns coming to an end and China's economy opening back up again? I think that's ultimately it. I mean, ultimately, ultimately, at some point, China is going to reopen, and they have taken on a policy of zero COVID, which is not something that 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 almost any other com- country has done. And I think ultimately, it's going to be better if they step back from that. I don't know how they can. So, what we have to see now. Is what we've seen in every other country on Earth a reduction of the number of cases, the intensity of the demands on the hospital system, and then the country's going to open back up again. Bill, man, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. When it comes to economic leading indicators, you'll find no shortage of analysts willing to talk about things like consumer price index, unemployment rates, and GDP. But if you're looking for something a little off the beaten path, Robert Brokamp and Allison Southwick have got you covered. If humans were good at predicting the future, we'd all be taking our flying cars to work every day and subsist off of some sort of nutritious sludge prepared by a robot that is very close to calmly losing its patience with us and eradicating our species. Whew, have you thanked your Alexa today? Anyway, wouldn't it be great if we could predict what is going to happen in the economy or the stock market? I mean, think of all the money we'd make. We could buy all the nutritious sludge we could ever want. So, today, we're going to talk about odd little leading indicators that supposedly predict the future health of the economy. And joining us is Mark Reith. Longtime Motley Fool podcast listeners will remember him as the host of Market Foolery and Industry Focus, and he's now with Business Insider. Hello, Mark. It's so good to hear your handsome face. 
Hello, hello. How can I how can I invest in nutritious sludge? Because I'm very bullish on that. You and me both. Let's talk after the show. All right. So the idea for this episode actually came from a member of our Motley Fool Podcast Facebook group. And he mentioned the first indicator that we're going to talk about today, and that's the men's underwear indicator or index. The men's underwear index. Yes, indeed. So the men's underwear index, uh, Alan Greenspan came up with this in 2008. Basically, the concept is that the last thing men buy for themselves is new underwear. No one's no one's looking, uh, and they certainly don't care. Speaking personally, holes upon holes, you know, down here, just mothballs and just terrible, terrible looks. So when guys are cutting their discretionary spending, it's often new underwear. That's the first thing to go. So this is an index to kind of uh, take a look at discretionary spending. And, you know, maybe, maybe you don't bet entire your entire portfolio on men's underwear, but it is a bit telling in that consumer discretionary stocks are not having a very good year at all in 2022. Uh, consumer discretionary spending uh, is is a worrisome prospect at this point, uh, almost halfway through the year. We're seeing a lot of consumer discretionary stocks down. The Consumer Discretionary Select Sector Spider Fund, uh, an ETF that tracks consumer discretionary stocks, is down 20% year-to-date. And a lot of these consumer discretionary stocks uh, that are being hurt are home furnishing stocks. So, like the Bed Bath & Beyonds, the Kirklands, the Williams, Sonomas, that did really well during the pandemic when everyone was trapped at home and staring at their boring walls, you know, deciding what paint color uh, to change it to. Uh, they've, you know, those stocks kind of pulled forward a lot of demand in 2020, 2021, and now we're seeing them struggle in 2022. So consumers across the board are probably not feeling as good as they once were when stimulus payments were coming in. And a lot of consumer discretionary stocks saw great last two years, and maybe you're kind of fading a bit this year. Overall, I'm not telling you to invest based on how new your underpants are, but consumer discretionary spending is down. It is a little worrisome as we head halfway into 2022. All right. So, when it comes to accuracy, how would the men's underwear index score on, well, we'll call it the bereathability scale? Get it? Do we have to call it that? Yeah, I don't we know do. If we, uh, last I don't name is Reese. We have that. to call it. Let's not okay. overthink it. Okay. So, one out of five thoughtful nods, with five being more a higher bereathability scale. What would you give this? Sure. Uh, you know, I haven't I haven't stood in the Hanes aisle at my local Target uh, and counted how many guys walked by with new boxers or briefs. No judgment, uh, but you know, signs point to lower consumer discretionary spending ahead. I'm going to give this a solid three thoughtful nods on the breathability scale. Maybe you don't. Again, maybe you don't predicate your portfolio on men's underpants, but you should probably be aware that consumer discretionary spending is not as hot as it could be. First of all, it shouldn't be surprising that Alan Greenspan came up with this because many of you may know he wrote his speeches in a bathtub. So, you know, the underwear was the last thing on his mind before he got into the water. Um, and it's also not surprising, by the way, because I did a little research on this. So, we talk about this as men's underwear, but it turns out, according to a research study uh, cited in the Daily Mail, that <laughs> actually men only shop for their own underpants for 17 years of their lives. Otherwise, it's their mothers and their wives. And we know that Mark is going to get married in nine days, so his underwear buying behavior is probably going to change. So it's not just a men's purchasing index. I'm going to give it two nods of the head. 
I think there's something to it for sure. I think there's certainly something to people putting off certain purchases when either prices are too high or the economy is slowing down. I just think it's difficult to follow an index that requires you to stand in the underwear section of a store. I will note that uh, yeah, new underpants were part of our vows uh, before we get married. It was, I had to, I had to promise new underwear on the horizon. So you're not, you're not far off, bro. We we know what to get you as a wedding present, so that's good. All right, enough about men's underwear. Up next, an economic indicator for the ladies, and that is the lipstick index. That's right. So the lipstick index was actually brought to us by a guy named Leonard Lauder of Estee Lauder fame, uh, the chairman of the board over at Estee Lauder. Uh, he wow, came up you with this do pronounce that like a man. <laughs> uh, I wanted to. You didn't like that? <laughs> no, go for it. <laughs> now, now, Leonard Lauder, the chairman emeritus of uh, the board of Estee Lauder, which is definitely how you pronounce it, uh, came up with this index in 2001, uh, basically to explain why sales of lipstick were up, even though the market was tanking post you know tech stock bubble uh, and the economy was not doing so hot. And his idea is that women buy these kind of cheaper pick-me-up items like lipstick or nail polish uh, instead of spending and splurging on the big ticket items. You know, these smaller items can make you feel pretty uh, and feel good about yourself, and they're relatively cheap to some of the other items uh, out there. And so, you know, lipstick sales go up uh, as the economy goes down. Now, that's an interesting one to pair with the men's underwear index, where, you know, men's underwear sales will go down as the economy loses strength, as opposed to women's lipstick sales going up as the economy loses strength. Either way, the lipstick index has kind of been tweaked over the last couple of years. In fact, Estee Lauder's CEO, Fabrizio Frida, uh, noted mid-pandemic uh, that women who were staying home obviously cared a little bit less about their appearance. That's a broad generalization, but it's probably there's probably something to the fact that you know if you're forced to wear a mask all the time, you probably don't care too much about lipstick, right? So lipstick sales uh, at Estee Lauder uh, were down throughout the pandemic, but CEO Freda said that when makeup comes back, consumer sentiment will also come back. And he said that back in August 2020. Here we are in May of 2022, and lo and behold, makeup sales are way up uh, at Louder. They just uh, announced their earnings like two, three days ago, uh, and makeup sales in North America are up 12% year over year, uh, as opposed to skincare sales, which skincare, you know, body lotion, a little bit of self care, kind of rep replaced those cheaper, smaller ticket items during the pandemic. Now, those skin care sales are going back down. We see makeup sales going back up, maybe a return to normalcy uh, and a little bit of stronger consumer sentiment there. Uh, I don't know, you know if this is the most accurate indicator in the world. I don't know about you, bro, but I stopped buying way less makeup during the pandemic. Uh, I was really skimping on the foundation, saved a fortune there. Uh, I don't know if I'm ever going to go back. Uh, in this kind of hybrid remote work worlds where you know maybe I care a little bit about myself and less about impressing everybody out there uh, with this makeup. So I for me, you know, in terms of breathability, because apparently we have to say that now, I'm gonna give this maybe two thoughtful nods on the scale. I don't think it's as strong of an indicator as uh, the men's underwear index of consumer discretionary spending, basically because the pandemic kind of 
ruined this index. When you have to wear a mask all day, who cares about lipstick? When you're stuck at home all day, who cares about makeup? Of course, makeup sales are back up. It's just a natural rebound. So two thoughtful nods from me. I'm going to agree with you on that. I'm going to give it two thoughtful nods as well. Um, there is definitely evidence that during tough economic times, people do spend a little bit more on small indulgences. Whiskey sales go up, chocolate sales go up, things like that. But you do have to question whether something fundamentally changed in society or the economy to, to uh, undermine an index. And I think that might be the case here as more people are working from home, probably will affect all kinds of things, professional wardrobes, um, office space sales, things like that. I will be curious to know whether five years from now, this whole work from whole thing will be rethought. But in the meantime, I'm not going to spend too much time on the lipstick index. Not not hanging out in the cosmetics aisle too much. That's probably for the best. All right, let's move on to our <laughs> next leading indicator, which feels like we're entering sort of self-fulfilling prophecy territory here, and that's with the recession index. And we're going to try not to say the R word too many times to avoid triggering it here. Right, Mark? That's right. I prefer the R word anyway, because it sounds like an index of piracy. The R word. Ah, porch piracy, perhaps, actually. No, the R word, the recession index, uh, is this old school index created by The Economist uh, a couple of years back, where the idea is that the more frequently the word recession appears in print in the New York Times and in the Washington Post, the more likely it is that a recession actually happened. And you said it very well there, Southwick. You know, the fact that people are saying the R word more frequently can kind of become this self-fulfilling prophecy. You have to ask, are people reading and writing about the R word more frequently because it's more likely to happen? Or are people reading about the R word and thinking that it's going to happen and starting to become a little bit more fearful, maybe pulling their money out of the market and maybe actually causing a recession to occur? That's a, that's a question for you know the, the, the author of the psychology of money to answer. But for me personally, uh, I don't uh, fully believe that the R word index uh, is as strong of an indicator as it could be simply because of this self-fulfilling prophetic nature. Uh, of the R word, you know there is a lot. There is a lot of fear in markets right now, and it is kind of warranted given you know GDP just fell short of expectations. Two quarters of bad GDP or low GDP growth leads means a recession. Uh, we have a war in Ukraine. We have rising interest rates. We have sky high inflation. We have supply chain issues. We have COVID zero in China not going as well as it could be. There's a lot. To be afraid of right now. And there's a lot of indicators out there that are kind of making people more and more fearful. And I feel like it's really those indicators that are making people talk about recession more and more frequently and making the likelihood of a recession occurring actually a little bit higher. So for me, I'm going to give the R word index maybe, maybe three thoughtful nods. Again, I feel like this, the index itself isn't isn't the strongest indicator of whether or not a recession will occur, but I do think it is a uh, a lagging indicator of you know sentiment in the market and how fearful people are feeling right now. I'm actually going to give it five thoughtful nods. Oh here's wow! One oh Whoa. my god! Okay, all right. Here we so go. So I didn't. I did not find the Economist actually tracking this, even though they're the folks who came up with it. But so instead, I turned to Google Trends, which are you know Google's only been around since 2004, so we have limited data. But you can see definitely the mention, the search on the term recession has spiked, and there've only been a few times when it's been higher uh, so far in the last whatever that is 17, 18 years. 
And the other times were either right before a recession, we've had two, uh, or during it. So I would say that it is somewhat maybe leading or maybe more coincident. But the reason I'm giving it five thoughtful nods is whenever you have an indicator, you have to ask, what am I going to do with this information? And I think any time there is more talk about a recession, there's probably a good reason. And that's a good reason for you to look at your personal finances and say, you know what, maybe I need to make sure I'm on solid ground and maybe get a little more defensive. Uh, spend a little less, save a little more, maybe check in on your employer. Is your, you know, is your business going well? What's the likelihood that there will be job cuts or pay cuts in the future? What can you do to enhance your human capital to make sure that that doesn't happen to you? So I think it's a good indication when this happens, it's just time to do a little reset and say, okay, let's make sure my finances are solid. All right. Well, Mark, that's all the time we have for today, but you actually have more indicators that you want to talk about. So, you know what? Let's do this all over again in the future. What do you say? Sounds like a plan. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.